Oh, hey, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Um, here's what we're going to be doing today. We're getting close to finishing up the book of Daniel. So I hope Daniel's been good for you this summer, um, just walking through it. But we're going to be looking uh, this week at chapter 10. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go, up, go ahead and open up your Bibles, chapter 10. If you need a Bible, uh, there'll be some people walking down the aisles and they'd be happy to get you one. But uh, go ahead and open up there. And uh, we're going to take a dive uh, into the book of Daniel. So here's what we've been covering. One of the things that we've tried to get across is just the reality that we live in a difficult, fallen world. No matter how you slice it or dice it or any way you look at it, because of the fall, we just live in a difficult world. Every one of us in here, it's, it's going to be a hard world. You're never going to escape it until, thank God, Jesus returns. But we just live in a difficult world. But that doesn't mean that we check out of this world. That God has left us here not because he's bored, not because he thought, oh, I'll just leave him there to make life miserable for him. He's left us here to join him in all facets and areas of life. He's asked us to join him in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our cities. He's asked for us to be these ones that exhibit who he is to this world. And the thing I've loved about studying the book of Daniel is Daniel did just that. In every facet of life, he wanted to show off who God was and so how he operated and, and roamed in and through, especially the political world, which, by the way, in case you guys didn't know this, we have an election coming up, is that he was showing this is what it looks like. But the other thing that I hope you haven't missed is just this overarching picture that our God is in control. I think that is so difficult to keep in our minds in the midst of our daily stuff, whether we're dealing with family, whether we're dealing with whatever it is, but even on the cosmic level, on the grand level, our God's in control. Now, one of the difficult things about teaching chapter 10 is we're not now just talking about how we operate amongst one another or even you know whether we're supposed to vote for uh, Clinton or Trump or whoever. Now all of a sudden he's going to lift the lid off and he's going to show us something different. He's going to show us the spiritual realm. Now that's weird because we can't relate to that. We live in our little four-dimensional world of time and, and, and space and matter and how we see things is so tangible. It's so how we can understand things. And this spiritual realm that's out there is so difficult for us to understand. So when all of a sudden we come to the Bible and we're going to look at things like the spiritual realm, we don't have little boxes to understand how this thing works. But here's the thing I want you to get is the same thing that, that has been playing out itself all throughout the book of Daniel in the physical realm, we're going to find supersedes and also lands itself into the spiritual realm. Specifically, our God it reigns and is in control. Now what's going to happen here, because we can't see the spiritual realm, we can't go there, is that the book of Daniel is going to kind of lift the lid, and we're going to get to take this little glimpse into the angelic realm. We're going to see evil angels, sometimes called demons or different things, we're going to see them, we're going to see angelic beings that serve God greatly, but we're going to get this picture into it, and one of my hopes actually, and just so you know this, is that we would all leave just a little freaked out. Really, Todd? Yes. Now here's why. Because I think if we understood how powerful that realm is, we would desire and seek God more. So what we're going to see with Daniel is, is that he is now in a similar place he was back in chapter 9. 
Chapter 9, he'd been reading the book of Jeremiah, and, and in reading the book of Jeremiah, he'd come across this concept in which he realized, Jeremiah says, in 70 years or so, that God's going to bring the people of Israel back to Jerusalem. So he starts adding up on his fingers according to how he saw it, and he realized, oh my goodness, that's coming here pretty quickly. So he starts crying out to God, God, is this the time? And you get this, you know, he starts confessing his sin, the sin of the people, crying out to God to fulfill his promise. And all of chapter 9 is the answer to that, specifically when we get into like 9, 20 through 27. The thing about chapter 10, though, is that this is two years later. And the thing we find him doing here is not being excited about the people of Israel going back to Jerusalem. We now find him mourning. Now, what in the world happened between Daniel 9 and Daniel 10 that caused him to have a sense of excitement in the people going back to now coming to chapter 10 and finding himself mourning? Well, one of the key things that we're going to find out that's in chapter 10, and specifically like in books like Ezra, chapter 3, you'll see this, is that God had sent some people back, about 42,000, which by the way was just a drop in the bucket in light of all the people, and when they got there, what they found was just ruins. In fact, when they got there, it was so in ruins, it took them seven months just to clear things out to be able to begin to work on the temple. Then after beginning to work on it, they begin to build the altar. Then they begin to just kind of have the pressures of normal life, just the existence of trying to hew out life and eat food and drink water. And then they begin to find persecution from all the people around them. And in fact, they get to this point where they just shut down for almost 15 years. They shut down until we get to books like Zechariah. News is drifting back to Babylon, and Daniel is just mourning. In his head, he thought, no way, this is going to be it. This is where everything is going to go good. I remember when I first came to know Jesus, I don't know how many of you were this way, but I first came into a encounter with God, and I'm like, this following Jesus thing is so awesome. And then reality hits. Life begins to happen, and we realize that following God isn't always a peachy, fun road. A few weeks ago, I took my family on a trip. We drove from here to Montana. We got in the van, man. We're on the 118, 210, and the kids are like, We get to Barstow. Get to Vegas, and Satan wasn't in Vegas. He was in our van, you know I mean? It was like, geez, why? We just have this sense of excitement, but every once in a while, it catches up to us. And if you've ever been there before, you know where Daniel's at. Now in it, you can find in verse one, look down in your Bibles. God's gonna teach Daniel something about great conflict. See, in the back of Daniel's head, he's wondering, what's going on? I thought all these things were gonna play out. I thought everything was gonna be great. I thought it was gonna be unicorns and puppy dogs and rainbows. I thought everything was about ready to go great. And in the back of his head, he's wondering what's taking place. Now look at that, down in chapter one. Let's just kinda look at verse one. So in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in other words, two years after chapter 9, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for three weeks. 
It's just broken. Now, the fascinating thing about this, this is in the first month of the Jewish New Year, which would have been right around Passover. At this particular time, there would have been a celebration. They were celebrating the deliverance of evil, of how God had had taken the people out of Egypt and was bringing them to the promised land. And, And here's Daniel, and this shows you how serious he was and just how distraught he was. He chose to keep himself back from all that particular food. It even says he kept himself back from from oil. He didn't anoint himself, which, by the way, in a dry climate, they would have needed it. And it was also the way they smelt good. So probably nobody wanted to be around Daniel either. So it's just this side of it, though, where he's just broken. See, when it comes to fasting, oftentimes we read the Bible and we ask the question, why do we fast? And if you've ever been at a point of brokenness before, you know why you fast. You don't even want to eat. You're so broken in that moment that the only thing you really want to do is just kind of exist. You even forget to eat at some point. But I think there's even something bigger in this. If you notice, it says he held himself back from choice meats and wine. He was keeping himself back from the good stuff. See, the other part about fasting is is this idea of creating an affinity between me and other brothers and sisters in Christ. He was seeing the people that were back in Jerusalem right now, broken, not having what he had. And in his affinity with them, he pulled himself back at it to remind himself to cry out to God on their behalf. It's why sometimes we fast as a church in regards to our brothers and sisters of Christ around the world that are facing persecution. We don't fast. A guy the other day said, I, I fast, you know, it's really good. One of the side benefits is I lose weight. I look back and I go, then you don't understand fasting. And he was overweight too, no, I'm kidding. But it's just this side of it where no. He was holding himself back, crying out to God and looking at God in that way and saying, God, in the same way over Passover that you delivered your people out of Egypt and took them to the promised land, God, would you do that with your people again but out of Babylon back there? And it's just him crying out on behalf of his people. He's broken. So what happens? Finally, we see that God is gonna answer his prayer. He's gonna come to him. Verse four, so on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. That verse right there is just meant to cause you to go, what? What in the world? Now think about this. Tell him I said hi. When... When God gives this to him, like if I can, if you can just imagine for a second, somebody came up to me and said, man, I'm just down. I'm broken. I'm crying out to God. And I said, okay, well, come back into the room, right? And they came back in the room and suddenly I go, raw, and scared him to death. You wouldn't think that's a good counseling technique. (laughs) He's crying out to God. God, tell me. And what God does is God gets very big. The question we have to ask in ourselves, to our, of ourselves is, God, why did you choose to get so big in front of Daniel right here? I would have thought you would have come as this like tender, just sincere kind of look at him and go, Daniel, it's going to be okay, buddy. 
And what does he do? He comes in all of his might and his glory. It took me a while to kind of, in my own mind, wrestle through who this was. I think the person in verses 5 through 9 is different than the verses 10 and following that's going to talk to Daniel. In fact, just Friday, I was still landed. I didn't think it was. But the more that I studied it, the more I became convinced that actually who he ran into was the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ. He's praying, he's crying out, and all of a sudden God in his glory shows up in front of him. The reason we get that is like when you look at Revelation 1, you see that the image that's portrayed there is almost identical to what he's talking about here. And it says in there when it's talking about him that he was unique. See, the, the, the reality of even the belt around it, the linen belt, which would have been connected to the idea of the priesthood and what happened inside of the temple, is that this God that's standing before him isn't just anybody. He's the holy God. He's other. He's distinct. He's unlike anyone that we know. When it talks about his arms and his legs being a brass, he's speaking of this God that just isn't a God that's a mamby-pamby God. He is the judge who rules with authority. Even that last little phrase in there, the sound of his words, like the sound of a multitude. That when he came in speaking into this, if you can just imagine sitting in the midst of a grand stadium and voices just barreling down on you screaming, this is what Daniel encounters. This is so different than I feel like the way we oftentimes portray God. So often when I even in my own heart, and I hate that I have this thought or others that I'm talking to, God is just kind of sometimes my little buddy. He's the guy that I bring along for adventures. He's the eternal Santa Claus that he might put some coal in there, but that's just a warning. He would never put the coal in there. It's Mr. Rogers welcoming you to the neighborhood. This isn't the God of the Bible. Now again, the question is, why? I think sometimes what we have to come to is this point of absolute weakness. We have to realize that this God that we serve is so other and so distinct and he has to show us himself every once in a while and to us to realize while I am weak, my God is so strong. He just let him feel small. In fact, he goes on and he's going to explain it a little bit further starting in, in verse 7. The thing that he says about him, and if I can find it in my notes, there it is. He says this, and I, Daniel, alone, I saw the vision For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but with great trembling fell upon them. They fled and hid themselves. In other words, they didn't even want to see it. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. That last little phrase, he passed out. It was so great and so awesome and so beyond him. Poor 85-year-old Daniel passed out. He ate dirt. That's not the image that we oftentimes see of God. 
The God that gets portrayed as a controllable God. A God that we can fit in a box. A God that we can explain. A God that we can maneuver for our own ends. And this one standing before Daniel is the exact polar opposite of that, saying, no, Daniel, I am the great and the mighty king. And for you to understand in the midst of your brokenness and in the midst of the persecution that's going on, you must see me for who I am, the great and marvelous God who is beyond all comprehension. And Daniel passes out. What a counseling technique. (laughs) Next time you come into my office, we'll try it out. (laughs) What I love is what happens next, though. Here's God in all of his glorious holiness, and for some reason it appears that he pulls back somewhere between 9 and 10. And in verse 10 it says, A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. If you could just imagine the picture of it, of somebody grabbing him and trying to pull him up. And he said to me, oh, Daniel, and I love this phrase, man greatly loved. That great and mighty and terrible and awesome, I mean terrible in the good sense of the word, God, Daniel, You're loved by him. Remember how growing up, I don't know how many of you played this, my dad could beat up your dad? (laughs) Man, I remember, because like my dad, you know, he was a total cowboy. Man, nobody beats up cowboys. My dad could beat up your dad. In this case, though, he wants me to know, Daniel, that great God, your dad, adores you. The other night, after I'd kind of got on my son, he and I were lying in bed, and I had one of those kind of just cool father-son moments, and he knew I was upset with him, and he knew he was in trouble, and in this weird, quiet moment, he said, Dad, do you love me? On one level, I'm like, (laughs) but those of you that are parents, you know this. I look back at him, and I said, Josiah, I adore you, man. I would do whatever it takes for you. You know, we just started talking and hanging out, and I don't even, I was emotional, he could care less. But this is this moment with Daniel where God has just appeared to him in the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, scared the bejeebies out of him so much that he passes out. But the thing that he wants to know is all that awesomeness and all of that love, or all of that terror, all of who he is, Daniel comes to bear in my love for you. Your dad can beat up anybody. It says he stood up. And he was trembling. And you know in the back of his head, though, he's asking himself the question, okay, then, if he loves me and if he's that terrible, where's he been for three weeks? Ever thought that? You're praying and praying and praying, and all of a sudden you're like, God, where are you? Hello? Now, in our little arrogant mind, we think somehow that God's not paying attention. God, do you understand what's going on? 
It's Passover and your people, they went back, but they're sitting around doing nothing. Even the ones that have stayed here, the myriads more, man, they're just comfortable and safe here. God, you were supposed to take them back and I've been crying to you, not eating meat and and wine and all those other things to just cry out to you, God, do you hear me? And I love what the angel says here. He says, Daniel, fear not, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. When? From the moment you started talking to me. And I've come because of your words. I'm here right now because of your words. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. Daniel, From the moment that you cried out to me, I was coming, but something happened in a realm that you don't have a clue about. Now this is where our mind goes. You mean to tell me, Todd, there's a spiritual battle that's happening up there amongst all of the angels, the demonic world, and the godly angel world that we don't see, that this combating actually then meant the holding back for one of these grand angels for three weeks? Yes. Not only that, but the way the Bible talks about it is in this angelic realm. He's later on going to talk about there's an angel of Greece, which starts to help us understand, especially when we get to like Ephesians 6, when it talks about principalities and authorities and all these other things that Satan has so organized the demonic realm in which there's angelic beings attached to every system of government around the world. He's attached not only on the national level, but the state level. And he's coordinated stuff amongst the municipalities around the world. He has organized things in such a way that he is now coming to fight against God's people, to steal and kill and destroy, to deceive even the Bible talks about the elect if so possible. Everything is being waged against you from the, angel, from the demonic realm around you. Now we don't see it but you know we feel it. People all the time will come up to me and say, Todd, how could people vote for Hillary? How could people vote for Trump? There is a deluding force that is worldwide that can deceive people to move in all kinds of different directions. That's the world that he's trying to help Daniel understand. Daniel, it's not as if I was eating bonbons watching the Olympics. (laughs) Daniel, I was in fierce battle and had Michael not showed up, I would still be there. But Daniel, from the moment you cried out, God heard you and sent me and here I am. The beauty of that statement for the visions and days yet to come means next week we're gonna learn that there's even more about this. Verse 10 is merely the hors d'oeuvre to set us up. Verse 11 is going to tell us more about this prophecy. Verse chapter 12, I mean, is going to tie a bow on it. He's saying, look, Daniel, in order for you to understand what I'm about ready to tell you, all these things needed to take place. You needed to see it. But here's what I want you to get in this. In the same way in this earthly realm that we live on, our God is in control. Notice that while Satan might slow things down, he cannot stop our God. I love the fact when Michael showed up. Wouldn't you have just loved to have seen that? 
Like, here's this prince, you know, of the kingdom of Persia, and he's like, whatever they're doing, like, yeah, I don't know, Greco-Roman wrestling, because it's the Olympics, right? And they're, they're doing it out, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in comes this archangel and says, no more. <laughs> the angel goes off and comes to Daniel. I mean, that would have been a sight to see. I think it's even answering in the back of Daniel's head, God, what's going on back there in Jerusalem? What's taking them so long? What are they facing? And God's trying to help Daniel understand, Daniel, this is bigger than that. You've got to understand there are spiritual forces that are coming to bear on this. It's not just a physical thing. It's not just the people around them. Daniel, there's a spiritual battle everywhere around you, and it is even affecting the, what's going on inside of Jerusalem. Daniel, the reason that it's happening is it's bigger than you. Everything that's happening right now is bigger than what we can see and taste and touch. What's going to happen in the, in the month of November, we should not be shocked about. If there's really a demonic realm, shouldn't it be worse? I mean, shouldn't it just be, I mean, we should have like, a weird hybrid of Trump Hillary. I don't know, you know, it's like we, like, whoa. And the only thing holding it back right now in any kind of a way is our God reigns. He is superseding things and his angelic beings are coming to bear in such a way, so much so in fact that later we're gonna find out about this one who's the prince of, of basically Israel, Michael, coming to bear on behalf of God's people. Now, on some levels, this is what I meant. It should freak us out. I mean, isn't it nuts to think right now around us there's an angelic world existing and happening, warring? See, there's some of you in here right now that you're checking out going, this guy's a numbskull. I promise you on one level there's a demonic reality that's happening because of that. Satan wants nothing more than to deceive and to take away the truth. Some of you right now are in the midst of sin and you're believing the lies of Satan. You're believing somehow that my sin's not a big deal. My carrying on in the way that I'm carrying is not a big deal. All around us, and again, it's not that the devil made me do it. It's just that we have this reality that we have to come to grips with. Verse 12. Excuse me, not verse 12. Verse 15. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. In other words, he just dropped his head. He lost the air in his lungs. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man, an angel touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, Oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. In other words, he's just saying, I don't even know what to say right now. You're trying to tell me that is what's going on right now, and now you want me to talk? I don't have anything to say. Verse 18 Again, one having the appearance of man, this angel, which is, I think, different from verses five through nine, touched me and strengthened me. And I love this. Oh, man, greatly loved. Whenever God's trying to get something across, he says it twice. Oh, man, greatly loved. Look at this next one. 
Fear not. How many times does the Bible say that? Over and over again, as we worry about so many different things on so many different levels, the Bible says, fear not. Why? Because God is a mamby-pamby Mr. Rogers God? No, because our God reigns, so fear not. Peace be with you, shalom. All is right in the world. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. In other words, I'm ready to talk. Why did God put Daniel through all this? To get him ready to talk. Verse 20, the angel says back to him, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. In other words, after that happens, I'm gonna deal with this one. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth as opposed to the lies that Satan brings. There is none who contends by my side again. These except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Daniel, what you prayed for, here I am. Now the Bible says that, the, that there are angels that minister to the saints in ways that we don't even know about. You know those moments, like I've thought about this, like it's caused me all week to go, you know those moments where suddenly I found strength when I didn't have it? Don't you ever wonder, was that like in that moment God sending an angelic being to you going, come on camper, buck up, you know, help me get off the ground. In those moments where you feel like you're all alone, little did you know, here's this angel going, come on, you know, it's okay. In those moments where you felt like, what are we gonna do? the ministering of strength that came out of nowhere. But the problem is, though, is we don't believe oftentimes that it's there. We have got to start believing that that realm exists. We have to start understanding that Satan, I think, has two different ploys to come at us. One is that he tries to project himself as omnipotently powerful. Satan is a powerful being that in the book of Jude, it talks about even the angelic realm doesn't mess with him. But he is not all powerful. We must keep in mind that he was created by God and the only thing he ever does all throughout scripture that we find out is what God allows him to do and nothing more. He's this one that portrays himself that way that seeks to operate, and here's, I think, his first tactic to get us to fear. You'll see that oftentimes outside of first world countries, if we can just somehow get the people to fear. Man, after, after I uh, read uh, the book, This Present Darkness, did anybody ever read that? I was like a brand new believer, and it's like stories about like long fingers and red eyes and fangs and things like this. Well, I'd finished reading it. I was working at a camp. And I was sitting in this dining hall, and I just got done, and it was totally pitch black, and I had to walk through a dark forest to get to my room. <laughs> and as I'm holding this present darkness in my hand, I'm walking through, and I'm just ready for any demon any moment to go, <sighs> So I was like all ready to, I don't know, do spiritual jujitsu or something. <laughs> in the name of Jesus, ah, you know. He will get us to think he is to be more feared than God and that is a lie from the pit of hell. When you begin to fear him more than you fear God, you are in trouble. 
But I think there's something more insidious, and here's his second tactic that I think he does. One, it tries to get us to think he's bigger than he is, but one tries to get us to think that he's not there. I think living in our culture, we are so predisposed to our physical senses that the thought of these angelic beings all around us just sounds preposterous even to Christians. Little do we know, though, that, that there's this demonic world sitting there, it talks about in James, loading up a lure and throwing it out in front of you, seeking to get you to sin. If you can just have somehow put us quietly to sleep, we will just be lulled into nothingness. So what's the answer to it? The answer to it is to come to this place where we realize that angelic realm really exists. But not to go the direction so many often go. I don't, I don't see in this that we're supposed to yell and scream at demons and, and, and try to tell Satan what to do. In fact, all throughout the Bible, you'll see this like in Ephesians 6. He doesn't tell us to yell and scream at, G- at demons. He tells us instead to stand firm. What in though? What are we called to stand firm in? Our faith we're called to stand firm in. The truth we're called to stand firm in. And who God is we're called to tr- stand firm in. You get to the book of uh, James. He says to instead in this particular case, humble yourselves before this mighty hand of God and submit yourselves to him. And guess what the devil does? He will flee from you. I don't have to scream at him. I just have to come near to God. See, in the midst of all of this, when everybody's so worried about, oh, is it going to be Trump? Is it going to be Clinton? Maybe there'll be a third-party candidate. What are we going to do? And we sit there and we yell and we scream and we talk, to, you know, talk radio and we turn on our news and we do all these different things. And here's the question I would ask of all of us. At the very end in Ephesians 6, it said we're to pray always with all kinds of prayers and intercessions. We're to come before God. Where's the church in that versus talking about all those other things? We're just supposed to cry out to God. We're to come to him and not complain and not pick it and not worry. We're to come to the God of the universe who, as the Bible tells us, supersedes all things and leave our worries where worries are supposed to be, not around us, and come and submit ourselves to this holy God and just say, God, you're in control. We're going to cry out to you because, boy, the choices aren't great right now. God, may you reign. Talk less about it and talk more to God. But the other beautiful reality of this is important. I don't know why God created Satan. We don't find that in the Bible. It'll be an interesting question maybe when we stand before God one day. But we know that Satan worked his way into the garden. Now you would have thought all was lost except in Genesis 3.16, God promised a snake crusher. The entire Old Testament tells this beautiful story of this coming snake crusher who was going to come in the line of David. He was going to be the great high priest. He was going to be the prophet beyond all prophets. He was going to be the one who was going to destroy the serpent. 2,000 years ago, the angelic realm, the godly angelic realm, came and announced that finally... The king of David has arrived. He is coming announcing that he will deliver his people from their sin. 30 or so years later, however long it was, 
As Jesus Christ hung on the cross, they thought as they pounded the nails into his hands that they were defeating him. But with every pound of the nails, Jesus was defeating Satan. When he breathed his last, I know the angelic realm thought, ha, 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 until we find out that the father announced the entire angelic realm, my son has been victorious. And three days later, when he rose him from the grave, that's how excited I am. When he rose him from the grave, it was an announcement to the world that because Jesus has defeated sin and because Jesus has defeated death, he has also absolutely destroyed the works of the evil one, First John tells us. And now one day when Jesus Christ returns, in all of his full glory, there is no Satan, there is no demon that will stand against him. The gate of Hades can't stand against the church that God is amassing. Everything is working towards the place where finally King Jesus will reign. So, what do we do now? We pray. We pray in the morning, pray in the noontime. Pray in the evening as we begin to feel the pressure of that world that's out there. God's people pray. Amen. All right, Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. I just pray Jesus was exalted today, Father. I pray that all of us in here sense just the reality of an angelic realm that's pressing down on us. But God, I also beg you through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you enliven our hearts from the truth of your word that our God reigns. In your precious name we pray, amen.